Okay, I want to invite my panel to join me on the stage. Um, many of you know that I never in, invite or allow anyone on this stage that's not a close personal friend. And this morning, I brought uh, four of them. So uh, coming up uh, closest to me is Professor Mark Tremaine, who uh, runs our criminal justice program here at the college. I'm grateful to have him joining us. Next to him is Professor uh, Dr. Rachel Griffiths, who uh, is a professor in our language and literature uh, department. Next to her uh, is Andy Giorgetti and uh, Andy... Uh, is in our online department. He asks that you would please contact him for all of your IT needs. No, 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 he, no, don't do that. Don't, you don't do that. You can actually uh, uh, contact Dr. Ken Brown, who hates me for mentioning that you can do that. So, uh, but uh, don't contact Andy for your online needs. And then next to him is uh, Professor Gabrielson, uh, Dr. Gabrielson, who, um, and Dr. Uh, Georgetti as well, I should mention, um, but Professor Gabrielson, uh, who teaches in our Bible and Theology department and who kicked off this series uh, with a great message two weeks ago from Isaiah chapter 30, titled, Be Political, Not Partisan. So um, I don't know that any of us would say that we're political experts necessarily, um, but we've prepared a little bit to have a conversation around these matters that hopefully uh, blesses you. And so we're going to get right into it. And uh, guys, who'd you vote for? Ah, thank you. See, okay. More people laugh today than Wednesday. That's a good joke. Andy actually said Jesus 2020, but I'm not sure who his running mate is. So that was good. Okay, not a real question though, but as we have seen uh, some of these results and some of just the narratives roll in over the last few days, I wonder if uh, any of you uh, might go forth and sort of share what your thoughts and impressions have been uh, since uh, election day finished up on Tuesday. Any of you go feel, feel free to jump in. Well, there's been a measure of sleeplessness. I, I grew up in a more political family, so I just track these things. And so, you know, certainly Wednesday morning, especially, I was, I was a little sleepy from not getting as much sleep. But um, my own hope is just that, like, the election ends up being at least relatively definitive. Obviously, it's going to have been a very close election, but I'm hoping that the states that tip at least, hopefully there's kind of a, a clear understanding in the end of, of who won, um, just because I think that'd be better for the nation. But... Um, Anyway, that's kind of what I've been thinking about is just kind of tracking it, watching, watching as results come in. Yeah, you know, I think for me that one of the, the greatest thoughts that I've had, and I think it's probably true for a lot of folks, is um, just a concern for the deep division um, that, you know, and the, the seems to be a deep ideological divide um, in our country right now. And, and um, you know, elections don't fix that. They kind of expose that. And, you know, what does that mean, you know, from here going forward? And, and how do we, you know, part of the conversation we're going to have today is, you know, how do we as Christians play into that? And what's the message that we bring to, to that current reality? Yeah, I, I just, I mean, right, right after... Um, so Wednesday when we were here, I just, you know, watching the, uh, the major networks that I was watching and um, as they were reporting, as things were coming in, um, it almost seemed for, for a very brief second, you know, while some of those anxieties or ideas were, were kind of, you know, underneath all of those people um, doing the broadcasts and reporting, you know, you had pundit, people usually pundits on either side kind of together in the same room, just, you know, the rhetoric was kind of gone for a second. And it was kind of a nice reprieve as people are just kind of, you know, in this together. Um, you know, those anxieties are still kind of uh, back. And, and yeah, so I think maybe what we, we talk about maybe help us to, to deal with that. So, 
Yeah, I'm struck by, Mark, your your comment that often elections expose the divisions that are there, which can be overwhelming and stressful and can bring about a measure of uncertainty, right? But we've already kind of talked about that. And um, I think there's a reality of it's better to know than not know. Because <laughs> once we know, now we can sort of say, okay, now what? Now what, right? here, How do we move forward in the midst of, of this? So I, that's, I appreciate that comment. Um, Tim, in your message from a couple of weeks ago on Isaiah 30, you closed with some really thoughtful and helpful uh, tips for Christians to help us engage in the political process. Certainly, that's been core to both what you and I, as I preached last week, uh, positioned us towards is not disengagement in the midst of this as followers of Jesus, but actually proactive, faithful engagement. And I really loved your tips. We've got them up here on the screen. And I wonder, neither one of us had uh, as much time as we would have liked to unpack these in our messages. So can you expand on maybe one or two more of those uh, as, as you see fit to, to help our audience this morning? I'm happy to. Um, so really, it's kind of tying together. It's probably most on the fifth one, but it would also um, have connections certainly to the first point of standing for Christian values first and always, um, and also on four, operate from a settled trust in God, not fear. But especially on the fifth, work for a better society, for but long for God's kingdom. Um, as I reflected on my message from a couple of weeks ago, I felt like um, I came off mostly on the dangers of partisanship because I feel like this moment is, um, there's a lot that I'm worried about, as, as Mark has mentioned um, already about the divisions within our, our country, but it maybe didn't give as much focus on like the positive role for politics um, in our lives and being political. It was part of my message, but it ended up being a minor po- point. So I wanna come back to like, what is the value of operating Politically, and here when I say politically, I don't mean simply voting or passing laws or being part of the legislature or something like that, but in a broader sense of engaging the American nation culturally, um, individually, society, you know, lots of different ways that we can engage. What is the value of doing that? Um, And I think maybe the best way to, to talk about this is just to give an image for, I think, what is helpful in terms of understanding. And it comes, it's, it's a theme throughout scripture, but it's, um, to me, especially clear in First Peter. Um, he uses a term that in English we might translate sojourners. Um, and that's not a, a language or a word that we use very often within English, but I think it's the right word. Um, a sojourner is somebody who's at a place for an extended period of time, but isn't a citizen of that nation or that place. Um, but they're there for more than just a few weeks. And so I think as Christians, when we think about our lives, um, we are sojourners on this earth. Our ultimate allegiance as Christians is to God and to Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate Lord. But we're still in America, in this particular context, for um, a long enough period of time that it should matter. Um, So we're not tourists who are just visiting and observing and kind of like, oh, that's fun, that's interesting. And you see the high points and then leave and never really get in depth in the culture, but we're also not permanent citizens. This isn't our ultimate home from a Christian perspective. American society, there's much to value. There's much some to be wary of too, um, but our ultimate allegiance is to Christ instead. Um, and I think this image is really helpful, but it's also something that for those of you who are currently college students in here, but also some of you who are visiting, and I would say choose Sterling, I'd love to teach you someday. Um, but. Uh, you know, when you come to college, it's actually a great image of what a sojourner is. And so when you think about it, most people who come to Sterling are not lifelong residents of Sterling. We definitely have some who grew up in Sterling and then came to Sterling College. But the vast majority of our student body 
came from elsewhere in Kansas or they came from California or Texas. We have some international students who this is even more meaningful to them. But when you arrive on campus, you know it's a limited period of time for most of you. You're gonna be here for four or so years. And then most people who weren't here before will also not be here after and they're going to go to some other part of Kansas or part of the United States or maybe internationally. And yet in your four years here, you invest, right? And you know, I'm like a decade plus out of college at this point. Um, so like, I know that like college is still super formative memories and I still remember so much of that time, despite the fact that it was only four years of my life. Those are lifelong friendships and you know, really important things that happened. And so I'm really glad in college that I invested and I spent my time and I worked and I interacted and I invested in the place even knowing it was for a limited period of time. And I think that's the image of being a um, sojourner that is a really good one to capture what as Christians we are doing politically in America in this case, is that this is not our ultimate home. So if we lose elections and they don't go the way we want or laws don't get passed the way we want or things turn, there isn't anything ultimate that has been lost because God's kingdom is secure. But at the same time, we're also not just tourists who's like, who cares, whatever, I'm leaving in two weeks, right? Like, so we, we, we invest and we hope and we work, uh, we work to better society, um, but we also still have that kind of settled trust that our ultimate home is elsewhere and that's the one that we really long for the most. Um, and this is actually, I think, incorporated in the most famous Christian prayer that many of you are familiar with. Jesus gave it to his disciples. Um, but the Lord's prayer, you know, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's that reminder that God rules in heaven and that's not in doubt and that's secure and certain. But what we're hoping for is more and more of God's will is done on earth and more and more of God's kingdom comes on earth as much as possible right now. Yeah, God's not up for re-election. <laughs> doesn't work that way. It's a little longer than a Senate term even. So no, I appreciate that, the image of sojourner. And maybe, Mark, I could ask you to add another image, really helpful one that we see biblically, but we also see in uh, the Apostle Paul some development of some other themes, uh, and, and namely the idea of being ambassadors. So I wonder if I could ask you to speak to that a little bit. Certainly, um, you know, just kind of piggybacking on, on what Dr. Gabrielson has to say with this idea that we're, we're not permanent residents here. We're not citizens, um, is what Paul would say in Philippians chapter 3. We're not citizens here. Our citizenship is elsewhere, um, but we're, we're sojourners here. But I would say and add to that, we're sojourners with a purpose. We're sojourners that have a specific responsibility. And if you look at um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, Paul in that passage um, is is longing for the opportunity to be finally at home, to be in that kingdom that we that we long for. And he uses language like, you know, we long to put on our heavenly bodies. We groan and we sigh. This isn't where we are meant to be permanently, but it is where we currently are. And so Paul reminds the Corinthian Christians, uh, we have a fearful responsibility, Paul says, and that is to be Christ's ambassadors while we are here. And so we have a responsibility. If you think of, you know, even in today's terms with regard to ambassadors, um, ambassadors are sent from their government to someplace else. 
So if we think of that in terms of the kingdom, we are sent to be where we currently are um, by God to be his messenger, um, to uh, present his message to the people, you know, where we currently reside. And so we, we are um, sojourners, but we're sojourners with a purpose. We're sojourners with a fearful responsibility. And the responsibility as ambassadors that we have been given is to persuade others with regard to the kingdom. And so we're here. It's not where we long to be. It's not where we will eventually be. It's where we are. Um, but we've got work to do while we are here. Yeah, one of my favorite uh, parts and one of the most stunning parts, I think, of that passage in 2 Corinthians 5 is that Paul says, God is making his appeal through us, which like is a weighty idea of what it means to, to live as a follower of Jesus. But I love that. So, uh, Andy, Rachel, any uh, other thoughts from you? Anything you'd want to add to um, the comments that have been made or any of the other tips that uh, Tim had in his message? Uh, any comments there? Um, I really appreciated number four, um, Tim's encouragement that we should operate from a trust in God and not out of fear. Um, I'm the only person on this panel who's not either a biblical studies expert or teaches from the Bible regularly, so I tend to approach these things with the perspective of the um, a teacher of American literature and culture. Um, and I think it's important to remember that... Um, Christianity is much, much older than American government, um, and Christianity has existed in a variety of governments, some of which have been very, very hostile to Christianity. Um, and so I think that that should draw us back to um, this trust in God that he has worked um, through people, um, cared for people um, in a variety of different governments. Yeah, um, I really appreciate all of the points. Uh, we don't have time to go through them, but... Um, I think that the image that you talked about of sojourners for, for five for working for a better society is great as well. And, um, and I, I think that's the story of the people of God as well, working as someone who does more Old Testament Hebrew Bible. I think, you know, you think about the people of God were pretty much on the move as sojourners. You know, they had some land that they were supposed to be given, but if you look through the whole thing, they're not really there that long, that long in the history. Um, and they are, they are sojourners. So, um, but number two, I think, um, uh, really spoke to me too, is, is to work with um, parties, but not necessarily for parties. And the, not not, that doesn't mean that you can't be you know, employed. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we, we've made that, <laughs> uh, that caveat. It doesn't mean you can't work for, yeah, right, but, right, right. But, but don't align yourself and seek earthly power um, you know, through, through political parties. Um, and I just think, you know, if, if you think about, you know, the kingdom of God and what, what that, you know, stood against misuse of political power, um, you know, Jesus, I get the image of Jesus in the wilderness, you know, wilderness temptation where, you know, the devil comes up, you know, and puts him on the high mountain and says, look out on all of the, um, on all of the kingdoms. And, you know, you bow down and worship me and, and all that can be yours. You know, Jesus could be bigger than Caesar. Um, and he says, you know, it is written uh, to worship God only, serve him only. So, um, so that kind of shunning of that power and not, um, not becoming aligned with it, I, um, I think we'll get to maybe some discussion of Daniel and Esther in some ways. Um, we can see faithful figures uh, that kind of work out uh, that kind of tension between that two. So, but I think those are helpful. 
Yeah, and hopefully what you feel, even from the discussion so far and maybe from these tips, is this tension between moving towards and uh, towards faithful engagement in the midst of uh, politics, whether it be of this country or you're an international student or maybe you're from Puerto Rico, uh, no matter what your context is, moving towards that faithful engagement and presence, not disengaging, not sticking our head in the sand, right, but also operating from this position of trust. And one of the reasons why we can trust is because to Rachel's point, uh, this following Jesus thing has been happening a lot longer than, than any government has stood. Um, and there's some governments that have stood for a very long time, right? A thousand plus years. Uh, and sometimes we think America's old. We're still in diapers, y'all. Like 250 years is not anything when compared to some of the other, other, other governments of the world. Uh, and certainly when we compare to what God has been up to since the very beginning in and through his people, um, there is a length there, a long runway there of what it means to sort of be a faithful follower of God underneath very, 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 very different and, and far more hostile governments toward uh, sort of what it means to be a person of God. So appreciate all of those uh, points and perspectives there. And indeed, in my message um, from last week, I did talk about an Old Testament um, sort of hero of the faith. Uh, you know, when we say hero of the faith, we don't mean perfect. Uh, there's only one perfect hero of the faith, and that's Jesus Christ. But I do think there's a lot that we can learn from the lives of who God chose to tell us about in his holy scriptures. And, and so I focused upon the character of Daniel, um, and talked about this idea of, and you've heard hints of it even in our discussion so far, but this idea of faithful presence. So I wonder if, and I know, Andy, uh, we've had some pre-discussion on a character that you're interested in sharing more about, um, but I wonder if for any of you, and, and we'll start with Andy, um, maybe who's another character uh, that that idea of faithful presence reminds you of, and, uh, and we'll start with that. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think, yeah, Daniel, Daniel's one of those that's, um, <clears throat> that really represents what people, how people can act faithfully in, um, you know, under, under that power, under the powers that be. How do you, how do you navigate being in a, in a particular place of power without, without giving in to them? And another character uh, that comes to mind in the Bible is uh, Esther from uh, the book of Esther. Um, again, that's a, a period where um, people are in dispersion. They're not in their homeland anymore. They're uh, under Persian Persian rule, and um, and uh, Esther uh, becomes gets selected to become the new queen uh, to the Persian king. Um, and um, through a series, of the, the the villain in the story, the, one of the major villains, Haman, uh, kind of makes it to where um, there's this decree where the, the Jews will will be annihilated, um, a genocide. And, um, and so Esther's cousin Mordecai comes in and uh, finds out and he, he, he kind of summons and kind of gets to, to talk to Esther and says, you know, hey, you need to do something, um, you know, or, or else we're all gonna, we're all gonna perish. And um, the dilemma that Esther has is that, you know, if she goes and tries to talk to the king, you know, she could, she could die. Um, because there was a law that said if, if the king summoned you, uh, if the king didn't summon you and you went to their presence when it wasn't your appointed time, um, you, could, you could perish. Um, and uh, this had, something similar had already happened to the previous queen, who, whose name was Vashti. Uh, she did not obey the king, and they kind of uh, were able to, to banish her and find a new one, almost like a Henry VIII situation. Um, and so Vashti knows that, that she could be in real trouble and lose her life. Um, and, you know, Mordecai kind of says this great response and says, you know, um, 
well, you know, if, if you don't do this, you know, deliverance and relief could, may come from somewhere else. Um, but, um, but who knows that you've been pla placed in such a, in this position for such a time as this. Um, and there's this kind of beautiful balance between that trust in God in that verse, I think, um, but also that faithful agency and action in your time um, where, yes, there's kind of this hint and nod. If you know the book of Esther, at least in one version, you know that there's the, the term God doesn't really show up. It's sort of in the background. Um, and so that verse right there is that hint that God is, is working and trusting God. Um, but yet Esther um, still, if she doesn't act, then she and her family will be killed. Um, and so she says, okay, I'm going to pray or I'm going to fast. You know, you get all the Jews and all your people together and fast. Same thing that Daniel and, and his friends did. Um, and at the end of that, she said, and I'll go and talk to the king and um, read the rest of the story. It, it works out, and they were able to save, <laughs> and they were able to, uh, to save, save family and save the Jews. So uh, I think that's an example of, of stepping out and working towards that, that faithful presence, even in those uncertainties and, and the, um, the dangers that come with that. Yeah, dangers is a really good word, right? I mean, it, she has this line, iconic, that she says at some point as she's wrestling through all of this. She says, if I die, I die. And again, all of this is, is couched in a political conversation. That's what I don't want us to miss, right? That's partly why we chose Esther as an example, another example of a, a faithful presence. And hopefully what I drew out in the character of Daniel last week are these are political moments, right? Like Daniel gets thrown in the lion's den because of change to laws, it's a political moment. This is a political action from Haman uh, here uh, for his own power to bring back another theme we've already discussed. Okay, so politics has existed for long before the American government, and there's resources for us to understand how, as a follower of God, as a follower of Jesus, we might ought to respond. And I'm, for one, grateful for the fact that I have never had to say, as Esther did, if I die, I die. Um, so there's a benefit even, um, but I know sometimes I can be short-sighted in the midst of that and just get really like, oh gosh, there's so many divisions or you're so frustrated, um, but we can sort of broaden our perspective by reminding ourselves of, of what God's been up to to the world and how that's interwoven with politics. I mean, even Jesus, uh, it, was a, it ended up being a political sort of ploy to get him killed. The Jewish leaders saying, this guy wants to be our king. And they actually say in John 18, we have no king but Caesar. Um, so anyway, other thoughts? I told these guys I wouldn't talk as much on Wednesday, so I'm stopping myself. Uh, any other thoughts uh, on this question of faithful presence? Um, anything you'd want to add, Tim, Rachel, uh, Mark? I think kind of along the notion of, of, of you know, the fear that can come along with having to live that faithful presence and the understanding that, you know, you know really fear and faith don't coexist. And so, you know, increasing our faith will help deal with the fears as well. Um, also from Daniel, I love the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace and, and all that happens there. That was also a political moment. There was, you know, there was a, a law where you had to bow down and um, worship the, the idol of the king when the music started playing. And, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know, chose civil disobedience and not doing something that was contrary to God's law. And when they're brought before the king, um, they stand up and basically say, you know, first of all, our allegiance is to God. We don't have to answer you in this matter. 
But since you've asked, um, you know, we serve a God that is able to save us from anything that you have placed before us in this fiery furnace that you're stoking up there for us. Our God can save us from that. But then they go on to say, even if he chooses not to, we're not going to bow down. So kind of along Esther's you know, thought, if I die, I die. We serve a God who is able to deliver us from anything, but even if he chooses not to, that's not going to shake our faith. We're not going to, uh, to bow to fear. Yeah, I love that. It's the, we believe he can, we believe he will, but even if he doesn't, we're not recanting. We're not bowing down. Um, I love that from their story as well. So, Rachel, I know we, um, in our kind of prep, talked about this this tension around um, sort of individualism versus communalism. Um, and I, you brought in some really good thoughts in our preparation around that. And I wonder if you could sort of bring in those ideas and kind of talk about how they might influence our, our political moment and kind of the lenses through which we view the world. Yeah, so I've done the really annoying thing by answering the question that I wanted to answer and not the question that Paul actually asked. So not don't annoying, do that to your professors. Not annoying at all. Don't do that to your professors. I'm being a bad example right now. Um, so American culture is very far removed um, from the people and the cultures that produce the Bible. Um, so I think that we need to remember in this conversation that we're talking about the Bible and then we're talking often talking about um, the founding documents you know, of the 18th century. There's a lot of distance between those two. Um, the major idea that led to the founding of our country were individualism and self-reliance. And so um, the social systems and the government that we have today reflects those things. Um, the biblical writer's context, so some of the people that we're talking about, um, Daniel, Esther, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, lived in really um, more communal contexts. And so I think it can be really, really hard for us to figure out how to use the Bible to measure American government because they represent um, such different cultures. Um, and it can be really, really hard to do that. Um, and I think that we often don't recognize the distance that there are between those things. Um, so along those lines, I'll just mention a Christian thinker. This isn't a biblical figure, but somebody who has helped me think about the best of what individualism has to offer while still recognizing that we... Um, are called to be faithful to Jesus and to biblical principles. Um, and so that thinker is um, Thomas Merton, who wrote a really wonderful book called No Man is an Island. Um, he was a Trappist monk who lived in Kentucky, died in 1968. And so um, if anybody wants to come talk to me about him, I can tell you more about this individualism and following Jesus thing. Yeah, I really appreciate the uh, tension there that you just outlined near the end of your comments, Rachel, around the best that individualism has to offer, um, but recognizing that, you know, there's, there's uh, only carrying that view in can actually be pretty problematic, and that there's a lot of distance between how individualistic our culture and our moment is versus the cultures that produce the biblical texts. And uh, it's not, it's obviously not impossible to faithfully read scripture uh, in the midst of our moment, of course not, um, but it's just really good to remember that that's a primary lens for us uh, and and that the primary lens for the authors of scripture was, was often one that was a little different than that. So I really appreciate it. Any other thoughts on that, uh, you guys from her, that you'd want to add in or maybe how that ties to sort of our political moment or, yeah, anything you'd want to add there, guys, to, to that idea? It's not directly that point, but just remembering that, like, <laughs> there is no, it would be easier to interpret the Bible for modern America and democracy if there were any examples in the entire Bible of democracy 
of the type that we experience and know today. I mean, even the ancient democracies were still democracies only of the landed elite rich men. Um, so even ancient democracies and republics were not the same as what we're talking about today. So there's no clear evidence in the Bible for who do you vote for because nobody in the Bible voted for anyone. Um, but even within that, like at different moments in the biblical story, they have more or less access to political power within their nation. So some of the Old Testament, um, Israel, and then later the nations of Israel and Judah, when they divide they are self-ruling themselves, and so you hear of kings who are faithful or unfaithful and prophets who have access to the kings. So in some ways, maybe that's the closest analog to what we have where we can, to some degree, directly influence our nation today. But other moments, the moments we've mentioned from Daniel and Esther, they're in a foreign nation, they're in a precarious spot, and it's unclear what level of political power they have and their lives are at stake. When you get to the New Testament, for the most part, they're completely outside of any access to political power with Rome. And so I would argue that, like, especially what Paul ends up doing is mostly founding communities that sort of live on their own and are countercultures to the dominant society because Paul has no access to changing the overall systems. And so it's more of like kind of modern Anabaptist, you know, middle of Kansas, we have a number of Mennonite communities and everything, and they sort of live on their own and do their own thing. And to some degree, I think that's also sometimes a godly reaction that we see in the Bible. And I think that's what, like, the communities Paul's founding more or less opt out of Rome and sort of do their own thing as much as they're able to and want to be stable and helpful to society, but they're not really even looking to influence wider society. But there's still that amazing moment when he's getting arrested and he goes, is it lawful for you to do this to a Roman citizen? <laughs> so there's moments where he, the little bit of access and sort of power he had within the system, he chooses to leverage. Um, and this, what I think we learned from the Apostle Paul particularly is how broad the guy was in terms of his strategy, whatever matched the moment. And there's this like Holy Spirit-led flexibility that I see in him over and over again, right? Like he's, he's saying... Um, um, like circumcision has no bearing, and then he circumcises Timothy, right? So there's like these moments, and you're like, well, you're just inconsistent. And I'm like, okay, maybe. I don't think so. I don't think that's what's happening there. I think there's great amounts of sort of Holy Spirit flexibility in different times and seasons for different responses. Um, so the, the, the hard work is sort of determining what is our moment, what, our, what, what should our response be, and what sort of Holy Spirit empowered flexibility look like for us uh, where we are today. So, um, and hopefully we're giving you some good thoughts in that direction, but anything else uh, on that before we move on? I think with regard to Paul and, you know, Paul choosing to, to stand on his, his status as a Roman citizen, because, you know, in Paul's reference, that's, that's what he was, you know, can you do this to a Roman citizen? And, you know, and uh, with regard to um, his time that he'd been in, in Philippi. And I think the interesting thing about that example is Paul was not utilizing his rights as a Roman citizen for his own personal benefit. I think he, he knows he's getting ready to leave Philippi, um, and he probably leaves Luke behind at that point, but he, I think he is using his position as a Roman citizen to bring some, uh, maybe some credibility or some validity for this group of Christians that he's leaving behind. So, you know, he utilizes that, that power, but not for himself, I think. Yeah, for, for the good the, of others. For the good of, yeah. the, of the Christians that he's leaving. As I was listening to what um, Rachel was saying, this, this contrast between individualism and, and a communal situation, um, Christ created his church as a community. 
And we mentioned, you know, kind of political divisiveness that we have seen. You know, I think one of the greatest tragedies is if these discussions with regard to political um, issues, ideologies, you know, elections, political figures, if that comes in and can divide the body of Christ, um, you know, that's where we end up in, in very a very problematic situation. So remembering and understanding the importance of the community that we have now, that it's 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 not individualistic. It is about community. One of my favorite, we've talked about Philippians a couple of times this morning, and, and I haven't done a whole lot of uh, uh, studying in Greek just enough to be dangerous, but one of the things that I understand about the book of Philippians is anytime Paul says you, he means all of us, you know, plural. And so it, 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 it's a community thing that we do together, and so we need to be careful not to get stuck on the individualistic aspects of it, um, but, you know, the fact that God did a lot, you know, plan for us to do this together. Well, let's talk about that for a moment, right? Because politics does have, as I mean, it maybe always has, and it certainly has in this moment it's doing it, politics has this power to divide. Divide different communities, whether it be familial communities. That's the trope, right? And all of you are about to go home for Thanksgiving, and like maybe you should sit by your aunt and not your uncle, right? I mean, I don't know. It's like it has this, this, has this politics has this the power to divide different communities, whether it be familial. We see it happen with the family of God as it ought not be. So how do we, right, we didn't have time, Tim or I, really much to develop this thought of how we should relate to those who we disagree with politically, but that's a necessary skill for all of us, right? Millions of people voted one way. Millions of people voted a different way. <laughs> Millions. So how do, we, how do we do this? How do we do this? And what, what thoughts might we have? What, what resources might we find in the way of Jesus for how we can relate uh, to those uh, who are different from us politically? So any, any of you can jump in on that. So I want to draw your attention to what you are up to right now, which is going to college. Um, I want to emphasize the, the importance of your education. So being able to study and to read things like history and literature um, and theology can give you perspective on some of the things that are dividing us. Um, these studies can help you develop empathy and help you learn how to be a good neighbor, which is really, really important right now. Um, and I also want to say a little bit about the tradition of the liberal arts. So that is your, your gen eds, what, what you're doing in your gen ed classes. It was originally designed with a communal aspect. Um, that tradition goes way back so that people who go to college can serve in their communities um, and they can be leaders. It wasn't originally designed just for you to go out and accomplish your own goals. Now, of course, that's part of it, um, but it has always had this communal aspect. And so I would just encourage you to just take your education seriously. Um, go to class, uh, write your papers, do your homework, um, do the reading. Um, and um, taking those things seriously really should um, help you. It's designed to help you be a good citizen and learn how to love your neighbor. Yeah, maybe you've wondered what the point of gen ed classes are. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, I'm just kind of rolling my eyes at these things. I got to get them done so I can get into my major, right? But just notice with us, as Rachel's so brilliantly pointing out, that that is an entirely individualistic perspective. And that's not all bad, right? We, we ask you to declare a major and get a major and graduate with a major. 
but there are broad benefits to a liberal arts education. We all desperately believe that because we work here, <laughs> right? And we hope that you see those benefits as well um, because it kicks you out from like the one thing that you want and to learn about, and it gives you this sort of broad, diverse perspective of different uh, lanes of study and allows you to be a well-rounded citizen that can engage. So um, yeah, don't miss that. And, uh, and, and, and I'll say it too, because I don't teach any gen ed classes. You teach gen ed classes, right? And you teach gen ed classes. And do you do any? Okay, not a lot of gen ed. Okay, so a, a non-gen ed teacher, that's me, will we'll also make a, that same point uh, to, to encourage engagement in those. But other, other thoughts about how we can broaden ourselves or help ourselves engage with those who we disagree with politically. Yeah, so as a teacher of the general education classes, I very much echo Dr. Griffith's points here um, that it's meant to be a benefit to you. And, and I'm glad that you know, there's this focus on the empathy and the love of neighbor that we can have and hopefully develops through the gen ed classes. And again, for those of you who are considering Sterling, this is a great reason to do a liberal arts education. I think it's a real asset that you get at a liberal arts college like Sterling. Um, but I want to focus on a couple of things I think not to do. Um, positively, yes, let's love our neighbor. Let's um, have empathy for those we disagree with. But I would say the things I would say not to do is to not um, move into a place where we have contempt or ridicule for the other side. And a lot of what I'm seeing about like kind of hand-wringing and worrying about our divisions politically, I think there's a lot of truth to it. You know, I'm worried about the level of anger that happens. Um, I think the level of anger and the way anger expressed can be often extremely dangerous. Um, but there are times for anger. You know, and we see heroes of the Bible, including Jesus, who at times are angry at injustice. So I don't think anger in and of itself is always a bad thing. And there are times to be angry at our society if our society is being unjust. So the anger can worry me depending on how it's expressed. I think there's also times when it's just really tiring to be around people who totally you disagree with. Like I think there's a time for kind of just withdrawing a little bit. So even the fact that we're not talking to each other isn't always a problem, though I think maybe it's become too much. But what concerns me the most is the fact that I hear on both the right and the left, both contempt and ridicule for the other side. And both of those are dehumanizing. Whether you dehumanize out of disgust for the other side or dehumanize by laughing at the other side, when the other side becomes merely a joke or merely kind of yeah, disgusting entity to you, that's what I see in contempt and ridicule. And I feel like it's things that we often say ourselves, but also the things that we hear on the radio or read in certain news or online publications or see on TV our polarization in America has become a contempt for the other side or ridicule of the other side. And I think that's de dangerous because it dehumanizes us and everybody, no matter what, is made in the image of God. And James chapter three, I think this is a very clear teaching from the book of James in the New Testament that says, you cannot slander anyone and made in God, made in God's image, which means, of course, no one. Um, so to me, that's where it crosses the line. I think there is a place for being angry and times a place for kind of just not listening to the other side if it's becoming too much, but there's never a place for contempt or ridicule or listening or watching or reading contempt or ridicule. I think just turn it off if the people you're listening to are going that direction as well. Um, just to save time, I think I could, I would add to that, but I think that's, that's a great picture of, you know, sometimes we should have the righteous anger, but not the hate. And I'm pretty sure Jesus said something about hate. Uh, <laughs> One or two um, things. A, a few things. Um, even people you think of as your enemies, um, you should love, not hate. So, um, but 
Um, just maybe a, a flip side of that, if you know those of you that are going to be going home in a few weeks to um, uh, to Thanksgiving uh, or being you know back while you're trying to do your schoolwork, um, it's okay to disengage you know, for, for that time for mental health reasons. <laughs> if you don't want to talk about certain things going on and you just need that time um, with all the anxieties going on, that's perfectly fine. The, the be political is sort of, you know, the kind of overarching thing. But you, if you need that time to kind of just uh, regenerate and, and, you know, get that mental health rest, do it. <laughs> it's okay. I'd like to piggyback just a little bit on what Dr. Griffiths was saying with regard to the, the liberal arts education that you receive here, and then also what Dr. Gabrielson was saying with regard to uh, contempt for one another. One of the things that should be happening as part of your experience at a liberal arts education is the opportunity to actively participate in the free marketplace of ideas. Um, this is supposed to be a situation where you have the opportunity to hear, you know, really solid arguments on this side of the equation, but then also other solid arguments on this side of the equation. And you get to, just like we do in the marketplace when we're, you know, weighing which item to, to purchase, you get to choose which you really um, agree with um, after you hear, you know, both sides. And one of the things in really hot political times that we are um, apt to do is just to silence the folks that we don't agree with, you know, not being willing to to listen to that perspective because I personally disagree with it, um, and that's really not what this liberal arts education is about. It's a you know the best way to see what the best ideas are are to let both ideas out on the table and let them compete with each other, and then you get to choose which one is best. Um, but unfortunately, in our culture right now, what we generally see is people trying to silence the idea, and very often contemptuously and through slander and through a host of other you know, negative behaviors, which that's not the way that it should be. It should be that everybody has an opportunity to present you know, their side and then we pick and choose from the free marketplace of ideas. And that's, that's really built into our founding document. I mean, that's the nature of certain provisions of the First Amendment of the Constitution is that ability to let all those ideas out and the best ones rise to the top. Yeah, no, that's really, really good. Tim, I wonder if I could ask you to maybe, uh, in a closing thought, point us towards a little bit of unity and then close us in prayer. Certainly. So I think in these partisan times, um, there is a, a sense and possibility that we uh, retreat first and foremost into our identities as a Republican or a Democrat or a, I don't care about the political process, please stop talking about this. Um, and kind of like in any of those um, avenues. But I would recall us that I think all of us can and I hope would agree that there's a deeper reality on different levels. So for all of us who attend Sterling um, or, um, or maybe attending Sterling, you know, most of us here are Americans. We have a few international students and so not everybody has this, but I think we're all Americans first before we are Democrats or Republicans. And so I think that's an important place of unity. Um, for those of us who are Christians, um, I think that's the deepest form of unity from my perspective is that we are united in Christ. That's, that's a deeper reality than being an American and certainly than being Democrat or Republican. But certainly even some people might not be um, Americans, some people might not be um, Christians who are at Sterling, um, but we all are humans. And I think that is also a level of reality. So I would just turn us to the unity that we have um, and make sure that those realities are deeper than the reality of Republican or Democrat. Um, but with that, let me pray for us as we exit. 
Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we pray for your mercy on our country and our nation. Uh, We pray that you would help us navigate what is uh, no doubt going to be a difficult few days, weeks, maybe months, as um, everything is wrapped up in terms of final vote counts, but then also um, lawsuits and different filings. And it it might be a while before there's certainty going forward. And I just pray for the unity of this nation and that you would protect and help this nation And I pray that this would be a moment in all of its partisanship and division that could actually end up being a moment for turning toward unity and turning away from some of the mistakes of our nation and towards a better future. Um, And I just pray that you would be deeply at work in this process. Um, But more than anything, I pray for um, us as Christians to be faithful witnesses within this um, uh, atmosphere and that we don't lose ourselves in the identities of Republican versus Democrat, but I pray that Christians can be a faithful and good presence within America at this time. Um, I thank you for everyone who's on stage, who has worked and shared. Um, I thank you for Paul uh, developing this series, and I thank you for everyone who is uh, sharing our thoughts in the audience and pray that you'd be with them um, and with their days, and for those who have traveled here, that they would have a, a safe time home as well today. It's in these things that we, or we pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.